You're listening to Asbury University's Chapel Podcast, recorded live from our campus in Wilmore, Kentucky. Asbury's Chapel Service hosts speakers from around the world to inspire academic excellence and spiritual vitality. We hope you enjoy today's message. It is Friday in central Kentucky. We're on the cusp of October. We're almost done with week six, which is crazy. It's a great, great time of year. And I want to welcome the many guests that we have here today. Thank you for being here at Asbury University. You are always welcome here. And I want to start today by telling you a story, as as I often do, to start chapel messages. So many years ago, when when I was in college, when I was your age, I played basketball. I played basketball at the University of Indianapolis. And you all may not remember this, your parents do. There was a thing called strength shoes. No reactions, okay. Google it. They look really weird. So it's basically, it's, it's a shoe with this big platform on the front of it. And the, the whole idea is that it puts inordinate pressure and weight upon your calf muscles and other muscles in your legs, and if you work out in these, you're going to increase your vertical, do all these wonderful things. So I bought some strength shoes, and y'all, I went bananas in these things. Like, I, I, went, I worked out every single day, and if I was going to do a workout, I did them with strength shoes. So it is true that they put weight and extra pressure on your calves. It also turns out they put extra pressure on the forefront of your feet, and I literally broke both of my feet. Bilateral navicular stress fractures. I remember the the surgeon saying that really well. The season had started and I was off to a good start and then, man, my feet really hurt after practice and then they hurt more and then I couldn't walk and then I couldn't play. And so I'll never forget being in the office of the doctor and he told me what it was. And then he brought out these two massive, big gray space boots that I had to wear on each leg that would basically relieve the pressure and allow my my feet to heal. I also remember my parents laughing a little bit. Uh, So uh, I'd wear, you know, like a nice shirt and then sweatpants to go over this, and you kind of had to waddle around campus. I'm telling you this, it was a really terrible time of my life. So from a basketball standpoint, not only am I wearing these boots and I can't play, but I lost my playing time, obviously, and as that playing time was redistributed to another player, I watched him get better and better and better. He actually went on to be an All-American. So I'm just watching my my hopes and dreams erode right in front of me. It was actually a really difficult social time as well. My kids love this story. I was in a class with another college student. I'll call her Melissa. And Melissa was funny, and she was really smart, and I I liked her. And I think she liked me. And we were talking in class one time. We were talking about the show that we liked, and she was like, hey, you should, you should come over to, to my dorm and uh, you should watch this show with me. I was like, yeah, totally, <laughs> let's do it. You have to understand that the dorms we had, they had what's called a quad, and so there were four rooms connected to one big room, that big room was the quad. So he's like, come to the quad, let's watch this show. Like, yeah, let's do it. So I'm excited about this. Have you ever done that as a college student? You spend a lot of time getting ready, but it's getting ready to make it look like you weren't getting ready. You know, you're, you're putting a lot of effort into not looking like you put a lot of effort in. I shaved, I put cologne on, but then I'm staring at these boots. <laughs> 
And the doctor had said, there are only two times you should not be wearing these boots when you're bathing and when you're sleeping. Otherwise, they should be on at all times. So I'm looking at these boots and I'm like, I'm gonna make an exception tonight to hang out with Melissa. So I don't wear my boots. So I walk over, I go to the women's side of the dorm, I turn the corner and walk in the quad and there's Melissa and there's a dude sitting right next to her, sitting rather close to her, I might add. And she's like, hey, you made it. Then she said, have you met my boyfriend? <laughs> so this guy who was on the baseball team and was pretty like well put together is like, like who's this clown? Like, what? <laughs> who are you? And I'm like, uh, Kevin Brown. Uh, and then to make matters worse, Melissa said, mm, where are your bits? <laughs> I was like, uh, you know, Sometimes I don't wear them, a technically accurate yet misleading statement. So we're like laboring through the show, and I'm like, oh, how in the world did I get into this? And then one of my friends is like walking by the room and then like did a double take and he poked his head and he's like, Kevin? He's like, what are you doing here? And I, was, I wanted to say, a question we're all asking. I was like, uh, you know, just watching TV. And then he said, where are your boots? <laughs> At the first instance of Melissa being distracted, I raced out of there. I was like, oh my goodness. Here's my point. It, it, it was a rough period of my life. And overnight, overnight, I lost all sense of my identity. And whatever like shards of identity I had left, they just eroded more and more during that period of my life. I, I say that after that diagnosis, I had a kind of identity malfunction because my identity was constituted in basketball. That's who I was. And when that was gone, it just washed away my sense of self. When we, when we talk about identity, and I've mentioned this before in chapel, and it bears repeating, I think, I think, the thing that we're after is durability. And what I mean by that is a durable sense of self, that our sense of self doesn't change, it doesn't ebb and flow with the circumstances of our life. And a durable sense of value, that my value, my self-understanding, my self-worth does not rise and fall proportionate to the different circumstances in my life, the grades I get, the affirmation I get from my friends, my performance, my prestige, that kind of thing. And then finally, durability in a sense of action, that, that I have the capacity to act even in circumstances where there is pressure, even amidst social cost. I think what we're after when we talk about identity is durability. And I wanna suggest to you that there are some false ways that we try to seek and secure a durable identity. Now, one misleading way, and we could spend a lot of time on this, so I'm glossing over some nuances, is what's called expressive individualism. And again, this is a, a term that was coined by Robert Bella about 30 or 40 years ago. And this just says that self-understanding is an inward to outward movement. Like it starts here and, and it moves out. So the philosopher Elizabeth Camp 
She has talked about most of us in the West think of ourselves in these ways, like a thread of overlapping psychological states. Who I am is an amalgam of my mind and my will and my desires and my emotions. And the other thing that's important about this is expressive individualism assumes that we are responsible for defining our own lives. In other words, the narrative of the modern self is that we have no narrative. We create that narrative. The philosopher Michael Sandel called this the unencumbered self, the creation of who I am through an act of my own will. And it's the false belief that I possess some kind of capacity to act and live independently of the persons and the places and things in my life. And I'll just add, by the way, a lot of commentators have said this kind of notion of self is a great, great burden, one that is asymmetrically felt by younger generations. Another false way we seek to secure durable identity is to ground our identity in, in fragile or unreliable sources, kind of like I did in basketball. I'm a basketball player, overnight that's gone, overnight I don't know who I am. Securing identity in roles that are unstable or inconsistent and constructing the edifice of my self-understanding in what Jesus would call sinking sand. And another false way of establishing self-understanding is to build our superiority and our sense of self based upon identifying the inferiority of other people around us. That's just an illegitimate way of constructing self-identity. So here's what I want to suggest to you, a modest suggestion to you. What is a better way of thinking about ourselves and our self-identity? How do we get this? Where do we get durable identity? And the, the forms of individualism and self-understanding that I just described are contrasted with an understanding of identity and self that is primarily defined by our social roles and our context. And you might say that this is an old school way of thinking about self. And there's a really wonderful articulation of this from the French philosopher and Christian Simone Weil. So if you might recall the very first chapel that we had to start the year, I mentioned Simone Weil. And I wanna talk about her philosophy. There are just a few things I need to mention about her. So first and foremost, she prioritizes obligations over rights. And, and what I mean by that is this. Uh, rights, rights are really important. We talk about our rights a lot in the West, certainly in America. Um, so she's not dismissive of rights, but she famously said a right is not effectual in and of itself, but only in relation to the obligation to which it corresponds. And what that means is obligations are more important than rights. Our rights are beholden to obligations. And in fact, our rights are only stood relevant to the obligations that we establish. And those obligations are established within a community. She kind of famously says, one cannot imagine St. Francis of Assisi talking about rights. But the most important thing about that is those obligations emerge from being embedded in a community, a thickly webbed network of relationship and community and tradition. The second thing you need to know about Ve comes from probably her most famous book. She wrote it right before she died, and it's called The Need for Roots, R-O-O-T-S. And the thinking goes something like this. If, if a society failed to feed 
a large portion of people, or if it failed to meet the physical needs of a large number of its citizenry, we would say something's wrong with that society, right? Hopefully you would say that. Something is wrong. Uh, something has not gone right. Something has failed. And she would agree with that. But she would also say if that same society fails to meet not just the physical needs, but the needs of the soul, something has gone wrong with that society. It's not just our physical needs. It's also the needs of the soul. There's a really fascinating article that I kept in 2009 in The Economist, really exciting magazine. But I'll never forget the picture. It was Adam and Eve in the garden listening to an iPod. That was the front of the magazine. But they had an article called Onwards and Upwards in it. And basically they were saying there has been no period in human history where there is greater material gain than the moment we are in right now. This is our best material moment per person in human history, and certainly in the West. But, the article said, our social bonds are crumbling. We have factions, we have polarization, we have social dysfunction. The environment around us is crumbling. We're harming, we literally see this right in front of us, we're harming the environment that we have. Mental health is waning, civic virtue is deteriorating, and institutional confidence is plummeting. And the article says, do we need a new definition of progress? And they would say, yes, we do. We need a different definition of progress, one that accounts for the soul as well as the body. Just as there are needs of the body, their needs of the soul. Now, in that, that book, in that chapter, she goes through all the needs of the soul, and time will not afford me the opportunity to outline those for you this morning. But the most important thing, all of these needs of the soul relate to one overriding idea for Vey: rootedness, rootedness, being rooted. She says this, being rooted is food for the human soul. It means being embedded in a mosaic of social networks, transcendent commitments, and relational obligations. And importantly, in a traditional sense, our sense of self, that durability I was talking about, is cultivated, apprehended, and expressed as a function of that rootedness. Because when we are embedded, it provides a shared story that creates meaning, purpose, fulfillment, and a sense of normative action. The famous philosopher Alastair McIntyre said, to know what to do, you have to know who you are. And to know who you are, you have to know the story you exist within. To know what to do, you have to know who you are. And to know who you are, you have to know the story that you exist within. Charles Taylor talks about what forms this robust identity. He says, my identity is defined by the commitments and identifications which provide the frame or horizon within which I can try to determine from case to case what is good or valuable, what ought to be done, or what I endorse or oppose, these, these forms of higher and lower. And again, rootedness is where we get durability, durability in our sense of self. Durability in our sense of worth. Durability in our sense of action. And actually, this, this understanding of rootedness formed Vey's critique of colonialism. She was writing in France when France was occupied by Germany. And she said, when you uproot a people, you kill them. You effectively kill them. 
Uh, she said, it's like taking a plant and pulling it out of the ground and just dumping it on your kitchen table and expecting that plant to live. She's like, it will die. If you want to kill the soul, she says, uproot someone. While you and I are not experiencing the same kind of colonialism that Vey was describing, I want to make the humble suggestion that America has a variety of forces that serve to disembody, atomize, and isolate us. In other words, we have the similar forces today serving to uproot us. We have hyper-consumerism. We have digitization and social media. We have waning confidence and capacity within our institutions. We have this kind of allergy to memory and to tradition, increasingly dismissing the voices that have gone before us, passing down wisdom on how to live well. And there are all these forces that atomize us and they separate us and they invoke loneliness among us. Vey says, this is like a ship that doesn't have a rudder. You're living directionless. You're losing orientation. And if you lose orientation, again, to quote the philosopher Charles Taylor, he calls it an appalling identity crisis. And this is not just a threat to us individually, just as a side note. It's really a threat to our country as well. Uh, Hannah Arendt, who wrote about totalitarianism, says, totalitarian states arise under conditions of loneliness. And we see these effects of being uprooted. And I, I don't want to belabor this. You all know that we feel it. We know it. But what have been called deaths of despair have skyrocketed beginning in the 21st century. They've always been there, but they've just soared in this century. The percentage of people who say they don't have a close friend has actually increased fourfold in the last three decades. More than half of all Americans say no one knows them well. People know them, but they're not known. Nearly half of young adults report persistent feelings of sadness or hopelessness. So what do we do about this? And Vey says, gotta be rooted. Rooted by a sense of being deeply embedded in a community, again, where you have purpose, order, meaning, participation, and an opportunity to contribute. It's what Lucy Van Pelt said in a Charlie Brown Christmas. Do you remember that? Charlie Brown, you need involvement. <laughs> She's right. There's a, a guy who's in my Sunday school at church. He's an agronomist at UK, and he was teaching one morning, and the person announcing him, they said, this is Chad, he's an agronomist at UK. That means he studies dirt. <laughs> and Chad corrected this person and said, it's soil. <laughs> now, I love words, and I was like, dirt, soil, and so I went home and I looked up, what's the difference between dirt and soil? It's actually a very significant difference. Soil is alive. Soil harbors organisms. It inculcates life. It's filled with minerals. It's filled with these growth nutrients. Dirt cannot support life because it is cut off from this ecosystem of life that characterizes soil. So actually the definition of dirt is displaced soil. Isn't that fascinating? I think there's a metaphor here for my comments. Uproot a human, you disembody them, you decommunitize them, you decontextualize them, and they lose their livelihood. 
They lose their life. They lose their soul. They become displaced soil. They lack durability. They said this, a tree whose roots are almost entirely eaten away will fall at the first blow. There's no roots. It will fall at the first blow. This is perhaps why Jesus used soil as a parable to describe how we receive God's word. Or one of my favorite Psalms, Psalm 1, that tree that's planted where? By streams of water, where it gets life. It's rooted in soil. It's rooted in life. Vey says you've got to be rooted. I said in college, breaking my feet led to despair. And again, this kind of identity crisis. I can remember <laughs> with great tears and anguish listening to U2, the song New Year's Day. You guys know that? I will begin again. I will begin again. And just, just repeating that to myself, I will begin again. I will be good again. I will get all this back. I'll get these stupid boots off. I'll play basketball again. I'm going to get my minutes back. I'm going to be the star. I will improve my impoverished social life. I'll regain a strong sense of myself. And that's not what happened. And today, I say, thank you, God, that that is not what happened. Eternally grateful for it. During that period of time, luckily, I started dating Maria, and things have never been awkward since. So that's, <laughs> that's great. 22 years. And we were dating, and I'd visited her parents a few times. And one time, Maria visited home, and she came back, and she, she gave me a book. And it was written by a Christian academic. And I said, what's this? And she's like, oh, my parents want you to have it. I was like, why? <laughs> what are they up to? How to be a better person. No, I'm just kidding. Um, she said, they want you to have it because they said you're a thinker. And I remember being a little shocked by that statement. Now, I had never thought of myself as, as dumb or maybe intellectually lacking necessarily, but I'd never thought of myself as a thinker. I was a basketball player. I was, I was a goofball. Those are the things that I did. But I read that book like a thinker. In fact, most of it's underlined. Things written in the margins, highlights everywhere. I read it like a thinker. I began to conceive of my world differently. The way I, I engaged some of these groups, I became deeper and more deeply embedded. Years later, when I got a PhD, I wrote an email to my in-laws. Actually, it was a letter. And I just said, today I have a doctorate because you called me a word. That's, that is, let me just say, by the way, that's what we do on our best day at Asbury. That's, that's the work that we're involved in. We're involved in hyper-seeing. We're involved in looking at the block of marble and saying, oh, there is a beautiful, beautiful sculpture underneath this. On our best day, that's what we do here. And that's what I experienced. Think of Jesus in Matthew 16. Remember that? Who do people say that I am? And they said, well... Some people say that you're John the Baptist, some Elijah, some Jeremiah, maybe one of the prophets. Jesus said, what about you? You remember those words from Peter? He said, you are the Messiah. You're the Savior. You are the Son of the living God. And Jesus came right back and said, and you are Peter. And on this rock, I will build my church. And the gates of hell will not overcome it. You are Peter, Petrus, Petros, and on this rock, Petra. Commentators will tell you the rock here refers to Peter confessing Christ as the Messiah. Upon his confession of who Christ is, he is renamed. There's a whole field 
committed to this, by the way. Some call it relational personhood, some intersubjective personhood. But the idea is this, a part, and perhaps a very significant part, of my self-understanding is bound up in my relational commitments. It's bound up in my interdependence. It's bound up in my community. And if I am uprooted from embodied incarnational community, not only do I lose relationships, I lose self-intelligibility. I lose an understanding. It's washing away a sense of who I am. I lose durability. The more I know others, the more I actually know of myself. Others help me to see myself. The bad and the ugly, yes, but also the good, also the hopeful, also the healthy, also my potential. Think of it like the Velveteen Rabbit story. As the Velveteen Rabbit was engaged and connected and in a web of relationships, the rabbit became more real. I think perhaps you and I are very similar. Now, let me just end with this. To be clear, it's not enough to just be embedded. There are obviously many forms of community and relationship and codependencies that can be unhealthy or harmful. So we have these ways of romanticizing community that are not only false, but they're harmful. But I'm talking about rooting ourselves in Christ and rooting, planting, embedding ourselves in a healthy, holistic community, a community where there are obligations and responsibilities and accountability. I've said this before. I think that belonging always begins with kindness, but its mature expression is responsibility and commitment and obligation. You know you're in a community when you're obligated, a community where you can find freedom and honor and risk-taking and truth, a community of transcendence. And we believe a true community is a Christian community. And we pattern our lives after the virtues and habits and practices that honor these identities and these associated commitments. Again, to know what to do, you have to know who you are. And to know who you are, you have to know the story that you exist within. One commentator said, we are narrative, story-formed people. Amen. We're story-formed people. Stories make our world intelligible, and they make our self-understanding and how we behave and act in that world intelligible. And communities rehearse, and they narrate, and they act out stories, and the strength of the community will be tied to the strength of that story. And our community is organized around the Christian story and the truthfulness of that story. The theologian Stanley Hauerbos would say that the truthfulness of a story is intimately tied to its day-to-day influence on our daily lives. It's not just a story. It's not something up in our head. It is literally governing. It is animating how we exist and how we live and how we see and behave and act and speak and think in the world we're in. He says, saints cannot exist without a community. Saints cannot exist without a community. So I'll just say this, when we talk about identity, yes, we're talking about affirmation, yes, we're talking about validity, all of those things. But I think, it's my confidence that the end game is durability. A durable sense of self, a durable sense of worth, a durable sense of action. And I think we get that by being rooted. I think Ve is right. Rooted in Christ, 
rooted in community. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this community. Thank you for your story. And Lord, I pray that this would be a community where people see it, they see your story. They see a different citizenship. They see citizens with the saints. And Father, my prayer for these students would be that they would be an outlier to these forces of death and these forces of despair and these atomizing forces that separate us and isolate us, that we would be an outlier. And Lord, that there would be a robust sense, a durable sense of who they are that does not ebb and flow with their circumstance and their value and their self-worth that does not rise and fall proportionate with these intransient things around us. And Lord, a sense of action that they can act even in the face of pressure, even in the face of social cost, that they would have a strong sense of who they are because of who you are and because of who we are, because you are, because this community is, I am. And Lord, that that would be our witness today. So Lord, help us to stand apart, not because we're great, we're not. Help us to stand apart because you are a God that exists and animates who we are. And we thank you. We thank you that you inhabit these spaces. We pray these things in the powerful name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Thank you.